When you lose your mentor, then you have to learn to trust yourself more. And that's not always easy. So much of what his life work was devoted to was kind of looking backwards to move forward. Chinese medicine is no longer a Chinese thing. This is a world medicine. And the way of seeing the body, the way of perceiving physiology, the way that that we see the body works in the Neijing, especially the way it describes the, the relationship of the human being to the world around us, to the universe itself, to the movement of, of nature and stars and, and planets itself. All of this is a way of seeing reality. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Jason Robertson is a gift to the field of Chinese medicine. After living in Taiwan for six years, studying the language and working as a translator, Jason found passion for the field that would profoundly shape his life to present day. After pursuing his formal schooling in Chinese medicine in California, he returned to China to study what he thought would be herbal therapeutics for gynecology. Instead, a meeting with a deeply respected professor, clinician, and scholar of acupuncture, Dr. Wang Zhuyi, would propel Jason down a much different path, specifically the pathways of energy as denoted in Chinese medicine. Jason became Dr. Wong's student in a somewhat unique subfield of channel palpation, and he has spent nearly the last two decades honing his skill as a clinician and teacher. Along the way, Jason brought Dr. Wong's teaching into the English-speaking classrooms through their collaborative textbook, Applied Channel Theory in Chinese Medicine, published by Eastland Press. Jason takes us on a journey of how this book came to be, his work as a practitioner for over 20 years, and his approach of letting life and opportunities symbiotically merge. He also shares the impact Dr. Wong had on his life and the loss that he feels now that his mentor has passed. As a visiting professor at Pacific Rim College for the last decade, Jason has brought to our community his profound depth of knowledge and channel palpation. And now, through this episode, he reveals some of the channels of his personal journey that started in the rolling hills of Kentucky and have led him to being a highly respected scholar and clinician of Chinese medicine. I hope you are touched by this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Jason Robertson. Jason, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Todd, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, it's so great to reconnect with you. It's been a while. I thought maybe we'd start with a little trip down our collective memory lane. Sure. Which, which I guess is a bit of a short lane, more of an alley. <laughs> our, uh, our memory hutong, I guess we could call it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we met, I think it was, well, it was in 2010 in Germany. Met in Rothenburg, Germany, down there uh, at the, what is the name of that hotel? The, uh, the Bad something. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, the lower hotel there. I remember uh, you and your wife, Bree, coming out on a beautiful spring morning while Qigong was happening in the background, and uh, we just struck up a conversation. I still remember that as well. Yeah, I think we had heard you speak. So we were at the TCM Congress. You were one of the presenters. 
I think we listened to you speak. I loved what I was hearing. And yeah, I think I approached it then to see if we could strike up a relationship and get you to come to Victoria, which turned out to work. Yeah, and fortunately, uh, very close to uh, to where I am here in Seattle, just a, a 45-minute seaplane flight away, which I've yeah. really enjoyed coming up there to teach with you guys because uh, I get to also fly on a seaplane, which before I met you, I'd never had a chance to do. Really? Oh, wow. So I have to thank you for that. Oh, of course. Yes, you do. You <laughs> owe me for that one. <laughs> yeah. How many times have you been here? Let's see. I taught at uh, Pacific Rim College, I believe it's four times total. Okay. It might be five. Okay. Uh, the last time being about a little over a year ago, I believe. Yeah. And, well, well, yeah. We'll definitely get you back once the all the lockdowns are done, if that's good with you. Of course. Love to, love to have you back to teach. And we'll talk about your teaching shortly. Uh, you and I, we share a number of things in common, not the least of which is our, our profession in Chinese medicine, but we both spent some time in Beijing. And you yes. you spent extensive time there, and that is where you studied under your mentor. Can you uh, talk a bit about your experience? Yeah, in, I mean, Beijing yeah. was the was a later phase in a almost I would say almost twenty year period of studying Chinese language, starting when I was seventeen. And so I I did most of my language training in my formative years in, in Chinese language, but not Chinese medicine. Living in Taiwan, actually. And uh, I was living there and working as a translator, actually, on a, uh, for a British bank on the Taiwan Stock Exchange, where I'd had a job for a couple of years and had really bad allergies. And that's, you know, everyone has their kind of, their, their genesis story about how they got interested in Chinese medicine. I'd always been very interested in Taoism and uh, had these bad allergies and had treatment. Uh, with an herbalist there in Taipei who I don't even remember these days. And he also told me to go get this particular book. And I started reading about Chinese medicine there. And uh, a long story short, um, looked into studying Chinese medicine in Taiwan. And in those days, they were not offering degrees to anyone who was a foreigner. This would have been in uh, 1996. And so uh, I also had been living in Taiwan at that point for about six years and thought this is, you know, Chinese medicine is, is this is way more interesting than working on the Taiwan Stock Exchange and uh, found a school in San Francisco, ACTCM that you may have heard of down in San Francisco. And I, I uh, started studying at that school in a full Chinese language program they had, uh, graduated from that program. Uh, ended up going back to Kentucky, where I'm from, and that's another thing you and I have a little bit in common is the that kind of Midwest, Southeast region of the United States, I think, too. You being a, yeah. a West Virginia native, West right? West Virginia, that's right. Yeah. And so I practiced in Kentucky, and after graduating, this would have been the early 2000s. Uh, I, I spent a year in between there studying in Chengdu, which is West China, you know, studying Chinese herbal medicine, uh, rotating through different departments there. It's an excellent place to study Chinese herbal medicine. Went to Kentucky, uh, had a clinic there for a couple of years, just a recent graduate. And like many of us, uh, after you practice for a few years, that's when you finally realize you don't quite know what you're doing, or at least you, you know what to ask. You start to know the questions to ask as a clinician. And uh, that initial confidence you have when you first graduate that you think you can do everything and that you've learned it all is replaced by that slam kind of right into the face of treating live patients and having difficult cases that you're having trouble working on. And that at that point, I remembered a professor who I'd met when I was in school in San Francisco, 
uh, Professor Wang Juyi, who had been spending about six months teaching down in Santa Cruz in Central California. And one of my teachers in, at ACTCM had said, oh, there's this guy from Beijing. He's just there for six months in Santa Cruz. You've got to go meet this guy, Professor Wang Juyi. And I said, well, all right. And so Dr. Wu and, uh, and a group of a few of the students and I, we went down to Santa Cruz and did a two-day seminar with Dr. Wang Juyi. And that was the thing that changed my life. And that's a long, circuitous way of describing how I ended up in Beijing. Uh, I remembered seeing Dr. Wong when I was in Kentucky, and I, I uh, had just married my wife, and we kind of didn't have kids and thought, let's go. And we went to Beijing. Uh, this would have been, at this point now, 2000. Um, I met Dr. Wong first in 1998. This would have been after a couple years of practice, probably 2002. Um, and she and I went there and lived for a year, and I... Paul, doctor, I got Dr. Wong's phone number from that Dr. Wu I mentioned earlier, just wrote it down on a piece of paper, and uh, my wife and I went to Beijing and thought we'll live there for a year and see how it goes. And upon arriving, a couple of, probably a week or two after I got there, I picked up uh, the phone in the apartment my wife and I had found and called the phone number that Dr. Wu had given me, and Dr. Wong's wife uh, answered the phone, and she said, yeah, hang on a minute, and he came on the phone and he, uh, I said, oh yeah, I'm the, you know, I'm the, the guy you might remember meeting when you were in Santa Cruz, the one who spoke Chinese and we stood out by the ocean talking a bit and he's like, oh yeah, I remember you. And, you know, I, I really wonder nowadays if he actually remembered that or not, <laughs> but he pretended he did. So he's always very gracious in that way. And he said, yeah, sure. And I, I he said, you know, why don't we meet? And I said, well, okay, I'd, yeah, I'd love to meet up and and ask you, actually, when I first went there, one of my missions was to continue my studies in Chinese herbal medicine in the field of gynecology, which had really been a fascinating and highly effective part of the Hospital of Chinese Medicine in Chengdu, where I'd lived before. So I thought, this is stuff I want to learn more about. So I was, I, I have to admit, a part of my ulterior motive of calling Dr. Wong was to meet with him and try to get from him some contacts, uh, contacts of uh gynecology herbal specialist there in Beijing to look up. And so I met with him. We, uh, we met right by Hohai and you, you probably remember that at, at Hohai in Beijing, the like near the forbidden city, a little bit yeah. North, one of the Imperial parks there. Yep. And the only thing I could think to say at that moment that I knew we both would know was the former house of Madame Sung Qingling. And she was one of the famous uh, Sung sisters, one of whom married uh, Chiang Kai-shek and died at 102 in New York City, and the other was the one who married Sun Yat-sen and followed the communists and stayed in Beijing until she passed away in the 80s. And her house is this great museum, and it's right near Hohai. And I was like, I'll meet you in front of Sung Qingling's house, Dr. Wong. And he said yes, and we went and had noodles, and we were talking about, uh, you know, just being in California, studying Chinese medicine in the West, and I finally got around to asking him about some of his colleagues who are specialists in Chinese herbal medicine and gynecology and, you know, him being one of the, you know, the, the, the members of the first graduating class of the Beijing TCM University in 1962, he knew everybody. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course I know some people. And I was like, well, maybe we could, you know, meet again. And he said, well, you know, I'm still, I just got back, you know, he was supposedly retired, but Dr. Wong never retired. And uh, he said, you know, I've just started seeing patients at this small private clinic and, you know, I don't have many patients right now, but you might want to come by. And, and I thought, all right, yeah, I'll come by and, and I'll, I'll, I'll see what you're doing there. And maybe you can eventually introduce me to some of these other gynecology specialists. And I went by and after about two weeks there watching him treat patients, watching him diagnose and hearing some of his uh, lectures on six channel physiology, 
I started to say, well, you know, maybe forget the gynecologist. Let me just stay here with you. And, and that led to, uh, you know, over 15 years of, of working with him and studying with him and translating his lectures uh, for groups of visiting acupuncturists to Beijing. I ended up moving to Seattle and going back and forth for about two months every year. And, uh, you know, that, that's the long version of my Beijing story. Uh, and sorry <laughs> to have gone in so many directions at once. No, that's great. And what a journey that the was. Whole thing. Yeah. We must have missed each other by a few months. I was there in the, uh, in the fall of 2001, because I remember I was there during 9-11, and then I think I left sometime around November. So I, yes. was, in the, I was in the Dongjimen district. Yeah, and that was right around the Dongjiman district in the Dongjiman Zhongyi Yiyuan. There's a hospital, Chinese medicine hospital there in Dongjiman. And that is where Dr. Wang worked and saw patients for 30 years. So you were right in his hood. Yeah, wow. What I remember uh, beyond the, I remember many things, but beyond studying Chinese medicine, they had, when I was there, they had just won the bid for the 2008 Olympics. And the frantic pace that they were tearing down buildings with just manpower and donkeys yeah and then rebuilding was it was extraordinary to see the transformation it was a bit scary mind you to see that as well i think people were being evicted without notice and but what a change that city made in such a short span of time yeah and yeah they did knock down a beautiful a lot of the beautiful old hutong houses uh you know like where dr wang grew up those parts of town some of them are preserved now, but they're, they're kind of like Disneyland. They're way too clean and way too nice, and right. they're full of more wealthy people. So, yeah, Beijing has changed quite a bit, Yeah, <laughs> even since you and I were there. Yeah. We're going to come back around and talk about your work with Dr. Zhu Yi and, of course, your, your collaborative effort on the textbook. I wanted to ask a question, though, and that is, what is Kentucky ginseng? Kentucky ginseng. Um, well, the, the the pun I like to say about that is those are my roots. And some people get the joke and others don't. Um, you know, of course, uh, as you probably know as well, being from West Virginia, ginseng does grow wild up in the Appalachian Mountains. And oh, yeah. so, you know, for one thing, then the name of my clinic here in downtown Seattle is Kentucky Ginseng Chinese Medicine. And it was the name of my clinic in Louisville when I was there for a couple of years before I met Dr. Wong. So I just kind of kept the clinic name, but it also reminds me of my roots and what all of us are doing who are trying to practice East Asian medicine in the 21st century outside of China is, you know, we can't practice Chinese medicine in exactly the way it is in, in, in the hospitals or, or in the doctors we see in China. And of course, we can't practice in exactly the way they did in the Ming Dynasty or the Song Dynasty or going back to the Han Dynasty when the Neijing was written. And so we have to kind of be bridges. And Kentucky uh, is, you know, where my family is from for at least five generations. And I have a, my grandfather was a, a physician there. He was a surgeon. My great, great grandfather was a, I think they called him the eclectic herbalist. So he was an herbalist in the old style of really? uh, Western herbalism. And I have right behind me here in my clinic, uh, I'll turn my video on later and show you, I have some of his equipment, some of his little herb wow. bottles. And, yeah. So I just had this kind of long roots in medicine and in Kentucky. And so I, I just felt that that was important to keep the name there. And of course, in downtown Seattle, no one forgets the name of my clinic, uh, they make jokes occasionally about fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the reason I have that name. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your clinic. Well, it's a it's a three treatment room clinic here right in the middle of downtown Seattle. 
and I have a waiting area. I have a little office for myself and I have three rooms and it's really nicely ventilated, lots of windows and a giant uh, calligraphy uh, from the Neijing that Dr. Wong gave me sitting right in front of me here on the wall about uh, the art of needling, in fact. And I see patients here every 30 minutes uh, all day long, see about 12 patients a day before coronavirus. These days I'm seeing more like seven a day. Uh, but I'm still working in the middle of this, and uh, I'm a great believer that we should be, of course, taking precautions in all the ways we, we can, but the temptation to close down and hide away is, is I don't think what we should be doing right now. Yeah, and you've been running that clinic, like you said, since your days in Kentucky. How many, how many years is that now? Well, let's see. I graduated in, in 2000, 2000, so it's 20 years this year. I've been wow. uh, pra practicing with, of course, some of that off and on back and forth to China studying. So I haven't had an active clinic every year in the last 20 years, but yeah. a solid, busy you know, 17 years here in Seattle. And how have you seen your practice evolve and also your style, your philosophy of practicing over that time? Well, it's an interesting question because this, you know, these last months, because I have for the first time in over a decade, just really slowed down with my patients. I might have a different answer now than I would have six months ago, but the evolution, I mean, the interesting thing about, I know you're in, of course, in Canada and we have different kind of pay structures, different incentives, different reasons patients come to see us because of financial issues. And in Seattle, where I'm practicing, in the state of Washington, most people who have private healthcare insurance have acupuncture as a as a covered, you know, covered thing they can do. And so, I see a lot of everyday patients in downtown Seattle: bus drivers, office workers, teachers, construction workers. So I have kind of an everyday patient kind of. Uh, patient population, which I think might be different than the, some people, of course, are, are forced to function in a place where people can pay them enough money to live. So I, I feel like I'm kind of fortunate to see everyday people. The evolution, I would say, has been more and more towards everyday people, I think, uh, here in Seattle. Before it was people who kind of knew to seek out Chinese medicine. And, you know, you and I probably started in this field roughly at the same time. And you know, where originally it was kind of more new agey people or people who had seen every doctor and were not getting better for anything. Those are the two categories, maybe who would see acupuncturists in the 90s, especially. These days, everyone knows about acupuncture and now they have coverage for their insurance. So in downtown Seattle, where I'm sitting, I'm actually much more mainstream medicine than one would think. I have referrals from everyday doctors and I see lots of people after surgeries and digestive problems and kind of everyday medicine is what I do. So it's become more like that, really. Yeah. And did you say you had three treatment tables? Yes, I have three separate treatment rooms. Okay. And so I have a person every half hour come in, and I, I would love to be able to finish in one hour, but I never do. And so I'm quickly moving between rooms, yep. uh, scrubbing, washing. <laughs> and I mean, these days it's not like that. These days I'm seeing a patient every hour, so it's not the same. But when okay. I was moving at that pace, yeah. I would have the patient come in and the patients I see are lying on the table as quickly as possible so I can palpate, which is, a, of course, a subject very near to my heart. And then yeah. I palpate and needle and get on to the next patient. So I'm, it's a pretty high volume clinic when it was moving. And are you still using herbal medicine? Yes, I would say the... Yeah, I have, a, I have an office manager who helps me fill formulas, thank goodness. And um, I would say the, the patients who use herbs with me are probably 25 to 30%, so definitely the minority. 
Uh, and that is in contrast maybe to some other acupuncturists who might consider themselves to be primarily herbalist. I, I consider myself to be primarily an acupuncturist, meaning I just feel like it's, it's the thing that I know best. That, that may be different in 20 years. I'm always learning. But uh, at the moment, I want to see what I can do with acupuncture only. And often, I'm stunned by that. I'm often very surprised at kind of difficult internal medicine cases that respond well without herbs, without, and, you know, with very straightforward acupuncture treatments. Yeah, I've always been blown away by my own experiences in that. Do you have any any stories you could share of those incredible results? Well, I mean, I would say one of the I, 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 one of the most common that I'm still stunned by are anxiety and insomnia cases, which can be really debilitating for people. And often they're on, you know, so many medications. I feel like what we're doing as acupuncturists is beginning to gain trust a lot with acupuncture, improving their sleep to some degree and starting to get people off of medications so their system realigns. And so that's been a really interesting one. I had a a really interesting case that I I like to tell this story because it's just happened recently and it was very fascinating. A guy whose chief complaint was right hip pain but he also had this kind of ache in his right lower quadrant all around his diaphragm, like his liver organ was aching. And I, I think this just really brings up something that all of us as acupuncturists have encountered is a lot of times people come in for musculoskeletal complaints. That's just what they think of us as doing, what the average, at least American patient thinks of. But they come in and you begin to realize that their musculoskeletal complaints are woven into so-called internal medicine. And so this guy, he was a young father, probably 40 years old, 35 years old, and he had this hip pain and he was an avid, you know, Qigong practitioner, yoga guy. So he really was in excellent shape, but could not figure out how to get rid of this nagging hip pain. And as I talked to him and palpating, his liver channel was very congested all the way up, even up into his medial thigh there on the right side below the liver organ. And I, you know, I was treating him as a regular musculoskeletal case for a while. And started to talk to him more and started talked about what his lifestyle is like, you know, this over the, by the second or third treatment, you get to know a person. He was, he was the kind of primary stay at home dad. And he was always the one with his kids. And it turned out it was, he had three kids and it was really overwhelming. They're all under the age of six or, or, or seven. And he had begun like taking like basically CBD products to help himself sleep, help himself stay calm. And I, and I, and he kind of talking backwards through it, he realized that his hip pain had begun as he started to start using these CBD products like every day. And it's brought up an interesting pattern I've seen. I, I, I think it's the case there in, in uh, British Columbia as well. As, you know, cannabis products are legal, more and more of these kind of everyday patients I'm seeing, so to speak, are using cannabis products, uh, self-medicating in this case for the kind of anxiety that he was having. And, uh, and those type of products, I think, if used regularly at fairly high doses, edibles, especially in those kind of different, especially the edible products that people are using, they start to affect the yin of the liver in a Chinese medical sense. And as, as you know, the yin of the liver is, we associate that with the sinews, with the attachments of the muscles and the ligaments. And so there's this kind of tightening that happens with certain patients who use those products a lot. And as I got to know him, I started to point out this is the liver channel that you can feel here on your leg. And I was showing him these areas where he was having tenderness in his inner thigh below the liver organ and talking about the lymphatic system of the liver and the cannabis products and what I've noticed on people using that. And so through the venue of this kind of treating this guy's hip pain, 
he started to kind of, and he also, as he later admitted, was probably drinking like two IPAs a day. So he was, he was just kind of overdoing it with himself. And so educating through palpation by pointing out the relationship of musculoskeletal complaints and physical discomfort to internal medicine, this is the kind of thing that I love doing. And this is just one case of this, that, that so many of the patients we see as acupuncturists have this kind of initial chief complaint of a neck pain or a toe pain, or in this case, hip pain. And by helping them to understand the relationship of the acupuncture channels and structure to function in the Chinese medical system, we can really help people make lifestyle changes. And so that's what this guy did. He, he stopped using the cannabis products. He stopped drinking as often. And he got regular acupuncture to kind of open the liver channel. We use some uh, liver uh, blood moving herbs as well. And he was much happier and his hip pain got better and it got better much quicker once he stopped doing that after the three or four treatments we did before he did. And so I think that's a big theme that, that we have. Some acupuncturists might say that they only treat musculoskeletal complaints or other people I've heard say, oh, I don't treat pain. You know, I only do internal medicine. I only do gynecology. Well, as, as you probably know from just watching this field uh, over time, so often what we think of as a physical complaint is just some window into the internal medicine side. So we have to be good at, at linking those two things together. Yeah, and it's to to separate things in that regard is to take away the holistic aspect of the medicine. And we really then are becoming more in line with allopathic practitioners just treating symptoms. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, if you could have a protocol for hip pain that doesn't involve educating person about the liver and it's not going to get better. Yeah. So let's talk about you said you're passionate about channel palpation a lot of people might not even know what that is who are listening let's talk about that because i know it's been much of your professional life's work and when you worked with with dr wang juyi you eventually i guess earned his trust and his permission to collaborate and write a textbook with him applied channel theory in chinese medicine and that was published in 2008 is that do i have that right that's right yeah. Where do I begin on that story? <laughs> yeah, well, wherever. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the main thing to say about this, if anyone's listening and uh, you could be an acupuncturist or you could just be very interested in the Chinese medical conception of physiology, how the body works uh, based on kind of early acupuncture texts, the Neijing and Nanjing and Jiaijing texts especially, we'll find that book that I did with Dr. Wong to be interesting. And, and the, the gist of it is, uh, I'd say the kernel of how it began with Dr. Wong, and maybe that's where I should start, is when he graduated from TCM University in 1962 in Beijing, he uh, was coming up in an era before what we call TCM-style Chinese medicine even existed. That was developed much later in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. So he was practicing kind of this hybrid style of acupuncture that had come down to a variety of family lineages. And so he had all these kind of what he called tricks or certain point prescriptions or ideas from the classical texts that his teachers mentioned. And he was just thrown into the deep end into the 1960s. Now we're getting even into maybe the early cultural revolution in the early 1970s in China. And he ran into that same wall that I mentioned I did in Kentucky. He hit the wall where the things that his teachers had taught him weren't working all the time. And he started to think, well, what do you do? I mean, what do we do as acupuncturists? We learn 
I, I think that all of us uh, who, who do this medicine might realize that the most difficult part, and in some ways the simplest part, is the act of diagnosis, the act of figuring out where the problem is in the channel system or in the Zongfu system or however we think of Chinese medicine. And he was having that very problem. He had too many point prescriptions for insomnia or stomach pain or, or shoulder pain or something. And he started to put his hands on the patient's below the elbows and knees, those areas in the distal channels where they're very cleanly separated, where on the arm, the lung and pericardium and heart channels are very cleanly separated before they start to interact more as they move into the trunk. And he started to run his hands along those areas, looking for clues basically out of desperation, not knowing what to do in difficult cases. And it was in that process that he started to notice patterns that when there were certain changes at a certain part of the liver channel or a certain uh, part on the lung channel at lung seven or lung six or these points we have, then it was most likely indicating uh, a certain type of pathomechanism in that, in that organ. So sort of a yin deficiency or a qi stagnation. And so he would start to ask questions while palpating. And so for me, the act, that's what I was saying earlier when in my clinic here where I have three treatment rooms going, when I walk in, no one except new patients are sitting in the chair. I'm not going to talk to the person very long because I can't talk without palpating. I find the act of running my hands along the distal channels below the elbows and knees while talking to be crucial. So the asking of questions and the palpating uh, for those of you who haven't done it yet, and maybe many of you have already tried this, as you're going along the lung channel, you find things in those channels and the questions you ask are shaped by the things you feel in the fascia and connective tissue of the patient's body. So I'm passionate about it because I don't feel like I can function without it. I feel like it, it'd be like, you know, working with one arm behind your back or something. You know, the human hands have such incredible sensitivity that the leaving that information off the table in the practice of acupuncture is a, is a big mistake. And that's, I'm sure, something you've also seen in kind of the development of protocolized Chinese medicine and, and the act of like trying to find protocols for treatment of certain illnesses. It's just not the same as, the, as making it fine-tuned through palpation. And speaking of those hands, what have you noticed with your hands over time? Have, have you always been extremely sensitive or have you, is that a skill that you've developed it's definitely a skill <clears throat> I've developed. I, uh, I entered this field, as you may, I was, you know, saying earlier that when I, you know, f even when I first moved to Beijing looking for Dr. Wong, I was, I was going at it, trying to come at it as, as, as studying Chinese herbal medicine. I think that was just the strong point uh, in the foundational teaching I got in San Francisco in our herbal medicine training was really good. And so I was an intellectual guy. I was always in my head. I'm always, you know, thinking too much and not being quiet enough. That's been a lesson I've been trying to learn all my life. And, and in the case of palpation, I was not that good at it, no. And, you know, what I've noticed over time and, and the way that Dr. Wong palpates is a very specific technique of using kind of the medial aspect of the thumb and turning it a little bit and running the edge of the thumb through the fascial rivers of the channels. And when you do that over time, you know, this is definitely an aspect of neuroplasticity. I mean, your brain begins to innervate or, or that part of your brain connected to that part of the thumb begins to develop and the things you feel change and grow over time. And now if I kind of rub my fingers as I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, I, you know, rub my second finger against my thumb on my left hand, which is my palpating thumb. And then my right hand, my right hand feels numb. It actually doesn't even feel the same. So the sensitivity grows and even more interestingly, Todd, is as you do this more often, I, I don't know any other better word than like the meta patterns. The more people you see, 
the things you feel in the channels remind you of this person, remind you of that person, remind you of that person, and you start to get into the realm really of intuition where you ask questions that almost just pop into your head and it does lead you in an interesting diagnostic uh, direction. But it's not magic. It's the fact that I've palpated this type of lung channel so many times that it reminds me of this type of pattern. And so I go that way to think about it and see if that's the type of pattern I'm feeling in the channel. So it becomes, it's a dialogue with the hands and the mind at the same time. And are you incorporating other Chinese medicine diagnostic tools such as pulse diagnosis or tongue or yes you are oh yeah i i uh i take the pulse on every patient although i will admit i'm probably a very very basic pulse practitioner what i get from the pulse is in the yin organs uh which one is excess which one is most efficient and then what is the overall nature of the pulse is it overall excess or deficient is it overall full or empty and that if i can get that information from the pulse and then palpate ask questions. And then the last thing I do is look at the tongue. I save the, looking at the tongue for last because sometimes I think I'm on a direction with a diagnosis in a patient and I look at the tongue and I'm like, whoa, okay, not that way. And so for some reason, I find the tongue to be a great thing to save to kind of confirm or deny the hypothesis I'm coming towards, uh, which again is kind of an intuitive, the longer I practice, the more you just get still for a moment and the diagnosis kind of forms in front of you. And, and this looking at the tongue somehow helps me with that. This is and hard then, to talk about. Yeah. What sort of experiences or releases in patients have you have you seen just from palpation alone? Because I know I've I've worked on many patients where I'm palpating to find the location where I'm going to insert the needle and they start to have a reaction. Have you had similar oh, experiences? Yeah. Absolutely. Um in fact, that was the other thing about watching Wang Ji work is, is Dr. Wang's palpation, he would spend at least 30 minutes palpating every patient when I knew him because he was retired and he was seeing like a patient every hour. He was moving much more, just kind of taking his time in those days. And exactly what you said, he would be palpating and the person would say, oh, wow, I just felt my, my breathing kind of opened up a little bit there or my neck loosened up. And he would always joke, okay, you're done. You know, go ahead and pay now. And, and, but the, the, the interesting thing about what you said is, you know, Dr. Wong in, has a variety of senior students who are in Beijing now. And one of his senior students, a, a, a woman named Wang Hongming, she is a professor at the Tuena University, the massage school there in Beijing. And she has taken Dr. Wong's palpation style and woven that into their, into certain aspects of their Tuena, their massage program and is using therefore channel massage to treat internal medicine patterns as well. And so that's been a whole, I think, area where this can grow is the act of feeling the acupuncture channels within the fascial system does not have to result in using needles per se. It can use, you can use massage, gua sha, cupping. I use a lot of cupping actually as well. So yeah, yeah. I've had that same experience you have. Tell me a bit about how the book came about. That's It's a massive undertaking. It is a it's a, a beautiful book, and it is extremely well written, and uh, such a a unique perspective in the field. The um, like like so much of what happened with Dr. Wong, you know, we all have these things in life where I don't know. I have this kind of theory, Todd. I don't know if you do too. Is it, if you're in the right direction in a certain moment, then life just kind of moves more smoothly. And then you have other moments where life just isn't always that way and it's just not as easy. And there's just these kind of off and on in and out of the flow kind of moments in life. Yeah, absolutely. And 
that was a period, especially for me, where just the act of like picking up with a wife and I just got married and just moving to Beijing without even having a plan, it just kind of fell into place. I landed there when Dr. Wong was in a time where he was not, he'd been seeing, you know, he'd been working six days a week for over almost 40 years at that point or 30 something years. And so I ran into him at a time where he had time to sit down and talk. And so he was just like, he, there's a saying in Chinese uh, about Chinese medical practitioners that after 30 years of practice, you're ripe, you're ready, you're like a ripe fruit, you're ready to be picked. And I hit him kind of right in that phase where he was, had something to say. And so he didn't have that many patients at that time when I first met him. So he just got out his, his notebooks that he'd been taking notes in from the Neijing. And he'd been giving some lectures, of course, around the world as well. He'd traveled around the world long before I met him. He was actually in Greece in the 70s. Uh, but he was mainly a clinician. And so he hadn't really had time just to sit back and let it all come out. And I... Uh, uh, was living in Beijing, kind of needed the money, to be honest. And so I called my colleague, Yafim Gamgonashvili, who was a professor, uh, he was a professor in Pacific College in New York at the time. And I said, Yafim, there's this great teacher here in Beijing. You know, you should come and study with him. And he's like, great, I'll bring a couple of my students from Pacific College in New York as well. And so that was the, the formative thing. We had a group of maybe eight or nine students came from New York. I translated for them and I recorded all, all of the lectures Dr. Wang gave. We would would have see patients in the morning and for two weeks every afternoon dr wong was kind of on fire in those days he would give like four or five hour lectures every afternoon for two weeks and i recorded all of them and then the groups would go back and i would stay in my apartment in beijing and in between the days i was working with him and i would listen to those recordings over and over and taking notes from them and then another group would come from new york and we started getting this rhythm of groups of foreign students coming to Beijing to study with Dr. Wong. And I was recording all the lectures. And then when my wife and I finally moved uh, here to Seattle, uh, I didn't have any patients. I had a, you know, just moved here, had, uh, you know, set up my clinic with zero patients. You, you know, you start out, you see three or four people a week and I had tons of time. So I kept going through those notes and uh, writing it all down. And eventually I just submitted a manuscript collected from and, you know, kind of annotated and organized all the notes from Dr. Wong's lectures that by that time it had been about, eight or nine years worth of lectures and I submitted them to Eastland Press and Dan Bensky at Eastland Press is like great we'll publish this and he was an incredibly good editor he went through my notes or through the rough draft I did and just ripped it apart and I would fly back to Beijing in those those days I was going for at least four to six weeks a year and I would just ask Dr. Wong questions that Dan had, had pulled out and that way we refined the book and you can see in the text we have all these question and answer sections a lot of those are questions either I asked or that came up in the editorial process. So the book kind of evolved over five years of just further refining, asking questions. And uh, I tried to really preserve as much as I could in that text, that feel of just sitting next to someone who's been in practice for 40 or 50 years and watching them practice and having a chance to ask them questions. And then I think you, you mentioned that you said last night you were kind of reading through the book as well. And you saw some of those stories that Dr. Wong told. And so he could sense, you know, he was watching the, the crowd if he was teaching and he would see some of the students starting to space out or it was hot in Beijing or it was getting towards the end of the day. And he would just push his chair back and start to tell stories of his life. And that really became one of the venues that he would convey subtle ideas about Chinese medicine or Chinese culture. And so I decided I had to, you know, put these stories from his life into the book because they were so much fun to listen to. I assume that anyone reading the book would also need a break from some of the kind of dense foliage of information in there and where you could just sit back and listen to someone who'd been through the 21st century in Beijing and 
what life was like as a practitioner and what it was like to grow up there. And so, um, yeah, that was the, the process of the book kind of evolved organically, probably over a, at least an eight year period from around 2000. Yeah, see, it was probably six year period from 2002 to 2008. Wow. Now, I might be one of the few people who actually reads the acknowledgement sections in books. And I noticed that C.T. Holman was pivotal in this experience for you. And uh, C.T. is actually coming on the podcast next month. Oh, yes. So. Yeah, C.T. and I were in that same program together at ACTCM. C.T. was there with me uh, in that very first lecture with Dr. Wong that I mentioned. He and I were in Dr. Wu's class in San Francisco together. And um, CT was in one of those very first groups who came to Beijing to study with Dr. Wong. So, yeah, he and I have been good friends from, you know, since the 1990s and uh, share a passion for palpation. Uh, we have uh, different foci, I think, in some ways, but we remain very good friends. And he also, in that period, speaking of questions and answers, not just Dan Binsky, but CT was reading many of those chapters and asking lots of these other questions. He was like, Basically, we were both at the same place in our study of Chinese medicine at that time. So if he had a question that he didn't understand, I know it's a question other people would have. So I benefited greatly from the things that were not clear to him. So yeah, he and I have inspired each other a lot over the decades. Yeah. Well, it is a phenomenal work. I've always enjoyed opening it to any page and reading. And I think you have done a great job in, as you said, retaining that that uh, cordial tone of just having a conversation with with a with someone you've you've really captured that in the pages well thank you for saying that and you know dr long passed away three years ago this very month and just not having him to ask questions to is you know is there's this point you know when you have a, a mentor a teacher a sure fool and they're gone and you know it, it, it's been an interesting couple of years for me you have to kind of reestablish yourself without the person to ask questions to and you have to get on your own feet and go to the text yourself and so it's been a real evolution since that that dialogue has ended too yeah can you expand on that a bit how his how his death did impact you well i mean i was uh i was not far south of you when i learned of his death i was actually out camping in the whole rainforest there on the in the olympic peninsula okay. and completely out of cell phone range and uh came back into cell phone range three years ago this week i was out camping with my family and i uh, had a text from my colleague jonathan chang in beijing and he Dr. Wong had been sick for months and we'd been talking to him and talk and, you know, interacting with him for months as he was getting sicker, but he died, you know, this very week. And, um, I mean, the, besides the obvious sadness and sense of loss and the, and the, and the, you know, the great sense that a person who had all of those centuries of information just wrote memorized in his head, just having that loss of that valuable information was one thing. The other thing was, though, the loss of him as an incredibly great friend. And, you know, it's not exactly traditional in Chinese culture to think of your mentor as a, as a friend, but he really was an extremely kind uh, and humorous person, incredible sense of humor. So losing that was a great personal loss. But then as a, as a professional thing, and that maybe is what you were asking, the, 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 the thing that he made very clear, and I, I, so before he died, probably two or three months before he died. So a little over three years ago, I went to Beijing and, you know, spent a couple of weeks there visiting him in his home. He was just in his home on a, he, he slept on a little tiny bed in his office, surrounded on all four sides by books. He would just wake up in the middle of the night and read and look at books. So he's in this room full of books and he, 
you know, he turned to me and he said a couple things. One of them was that Chinese medicine uh, is no longer a Chinese thing. This is a world medicine. And the way of seeing the body, the way of perceiving physiology, the way that that we see the body works in the Neijing, especially the way it describes the, the relationship of the human being to the world around us, to the universe itself, to the movement of, of nature and stars and, and planets itself. All of this is a way of seeing reality that should be shared and actually, and these are his words, is going to be an area where there is great fruit for research in the future. So, so much of what his life work was devoted to was kind of looking backwards to move forwards, looking into the classical texts, mining through them, looking for ideas to bring into the 21st century. And so, so many so-called discoveries, you know, like last year, there was this discovery of a new organ, the interstitium. This, you know, this idea that the interstitial pathways and fluids have a, have a function of an organ in the body. Uh, you, you may have heard about that research. I think it was in New York City. This is an idea that was related to the concept of the Sanjiao, the triple burner in Chinese medicine. And so okay. many interesting ideas. Uh, it, the, the, the real difficulty sometimes is translating the Han Dynasty to the 21st century. The people who wrote these texts... Uh, and, and commented on these texts and the tradition of hundreds of years that led up to the writing down of these texts, of observing the human being in a closer relationship to nature. All of these ideas uh, are, not, not all of them, of course, but so much of it is, 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 is stuff that we can verify in the modern era and stuff that we can use for new ideas in the clinic. And this was his passion. And so the thing that I'm trying to carry in answering your question here, into the future, is not taking his life's work and, you know, even that book that, and thank you again so much for your kind words about the book, but the thing about the book is it's like a snapshot in a moving picture of a brain and a way of seeing that was evolving over time. So in, into Dr. Wong's last years, after the book was published, he was still fine tuning and relocating, for example, the pathway of the liver channel. He was, you know, relocating where he was putting that pathway and reading through and getting, you know, kind of in, in some ways just saying the same things, but with greater and greater clarity, reading the Neijing again and explaining it in more and more clarity. And so what he was telling us, or one of the things he told Jonathan and I as he was, you know, in his last weeks of life was to take these ideas, keep moving forward, don't create a bunch of like stiff protocols where you just do what Dr. Wong did because he said it was that way, but instead to try to kind of inculcate this way of seeing the body, this way of perceiving and palpating the body and keep coming up with new ideas yourself. And so that's the great challenge now that he's gone. When I encounter, and I'm constantly studying other practitioners, listening to what other practitioners are doing, reading, and of course, seeing, most importantly, my own patients. But then when I come up with new ideas and I don't have the sounding board of a, of a, of a practitioner with 50 years of experience to say, am I crazy or is this a useful way of seeing it? That's been the biggest challenge as, you know, when you lose your mentor, then you have to learn to trust yourself more. And that's, that's not always easy. And, you know, that, that's probably the short the short version of the hardest part yeah. was last year. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing all of that. You, you mentioned that he was, for example, still relocating the liver pathway. Yeah. W was this an intuitive process for him? Or what, what helped him, other than obviously his decades of experience and his deep knowledge, but what helped him to actually determine these locations of pathways and the subtleties that are involved? Well... 
the fundamental thing that he kind of came to in his work, first, just kind of palpating diagnostically, as I mentioned, and then secondly, returning over and over, especially to the Neijing and the Nanjing, the very foundational acupuncture texts and thinking about what they meant when they wrote certain things, is that he, he began to basically come to the conclusion, especially below the elbows and knees, all of the acupuncture channels should be contiguous pathways, like rivers through the fascia. So you should be able to run your thumb, for example, along the medial side of the foot there at the you know medial aspect of the first metatarsal bone there, and go up through the spleen channel and find even a notch within the bone as you go up towards spleen five, for example, and then end of the pathway of the, of the channel posterior to the tibia. And so his whole thing that he nerded out on, in fact, the last probably five or six years of his life, Todd, when I went back to see him, the main thing he wanted to talk about was point location, which is like hmm. 101 acupuncture, first year student stuff. But like, all right, show me where you're putting heart six. Show me all this. So he was always trying to fine tune and feel, okay, this is the most contiguous river pathway for this channel. And so specifically to your question, the problem he had was with the point liver five. So there's this little notch on the tibia. You know about that little notch there that you, when you locate liver five, five to and up on the tibia, there's a notch there. Yep. And so that's where everyone learns the point. That's of course where he learned the point as well. And he started, you know, he had this problem that many people have is when you needle this point, either there's not much sensation on the patient at all, if you needle carefully and gently, or it really hurts if you hit the kind of periosteum there near the bone. Yep. And so some people then needle straight behind the bone, but then he thought, well, that now you're more in the spleen channel. And so he started then to start down below and trace the liver channel over the tibia through spleen six. And he began to realize there's this nice contiguous river there uh, behind the spleen channel. I have to kind of show you this that goes up there into the gastroc muscle, which is there's a notch in the gastroc muscle where he put liver six and it kind of follows. There's a fascial band. It's not a certain muscle. It's the, it's like the waterway that nourishes all these different muscles and ligaments and tendons through there that goes up to liver eight. And so basically he began to, then he started to think, well, maybe I should try needling in this area. So then everything he did was always about, you know, applied channel theory that I use that word applied to translate Dr. Wong's term, Jing Luo Yishue on purpose because he wanted to find not only cool ideas from the classical text, but stuff that worked clinically. And so he started to needle, not at that liver five on the notch on the bone, but more posteriorly there in that fascial river that you can feel going up the leg kind of between the kidney and spleen channel. And he started to get way better results. And so for the last six years, I needle liver five in that area. It's, it's a much more, you get more of a heavy ache, kind of like you get at needling spleen six when you needle this point in this space. And the results in, say, gynecology cases or various liver, like blood not moving cases are much better. And so by getting better results, then he started to think, oh, so at first he had it in what I would call beta form. Yeah, I think it's there. And he was needling in a variety of locations for liver five over years. And then finally, I could see him say, okay, this is where it is. And so the conclusion he came to to kind of finish this up is that basically on that medial leg below the knee, in his opinion, the liver, spleen, and kidney channels don't cross. I mean, they might cross at spleen six, but once you get above that, there's straight river pathways of all three. There's always that kind of debate about where the liver and spleen channels cross as you go up. And he said they don't. You know, you can feel the river if you go up in this posterior kind of fascial lining through there. So that, that's kind of, he came at it through clinical results. He came yeah. at it through palpating. I love the the ongoing R&D, so to speak, of this style of medicine that's thousands of years old. I recently had Peter Dedman on 
on the podcast who of course wrote the manual of acupuncture which is like the ultimate point location manual and as i was reading in your book the even the term acupuncture point is almost a bit of a misnomer because we've we've so precisely in western cultures define the superficial location of the points and teach almost uh, without exception in the schools that this is where the needle must penetrate the skin but as you're saying there's so much more to it than that and the point regions are they're more of energetic regions and there's so many subtleties and and personal differences depending on patients yes and and i i think that uh it's part of what i love about your book it's it's such a good balance to some of the the point location styles that we are taught and even when when students do their licensing exams to be practitioners they have to be exact tacticians to locate the superficial aspects of these points but Really, that's a, that's a very small part of it. And the work that you've done with, with Dr. Ju Yi is incredible to bring that knowledge forward so that people can develop, in a sense, their own intuition about where the points are located. Well, that's exactly it, Todd, is, is this ability to have a way of seeing the body, and that includes the way of physiology works. And, you know, there's, there's two kind of core like foundational things that I've been thinking about recently about Chinese medicine. There is Li, which are the principles, which is, you know, Li originally this term was like the, the veins that move through Jade, you know, they're the ultimate principles of the, of the universe and how things work. That's Li. And then there's the other term in Chinese medicine, Fa, and those are the methods. Those are like the ways that you apply Li, the, you know, acupuncture is a method, Chinese herbal medicine, Gua Sha, massage, Qigong is a method. And so, Really, the longer we practice, what we're doing is we're, fi- we're refining our understanding of Li, of the basic principles of how things are, and the methods then become a little more flexible. Once you have the idea that the channel pathways are these contiguous rivers within the fascia that you can feel, they're, you know, they're anatomically there, uh, and they're not the same as skin, flesh, sinews, and bones. That's what the Neijing was saying. They're not the same as the as, as like hard anatomy necessarily. There's something, they're like the water pathways there. Once you have that Li, that principle in your head and really kind of inculcate it, I mean, really take it into your hands, then your location of points can move and you have this ability to be intuitive. Every treatment becomes like a dialogue, like a conversation. And it's like a, a, there's an improvisation that happens in clinic, which makes it so much more fun to go to work. Yeah. Well, I love that, <laughs> that metaphor of, of the rivers, uh, because it, it indicates the di- dynamic nature of the acupuncture meridians and the points and combining the work that you've done in that philosophy with, with the point location text, such as, as Peter Debman's, it brings about a great opportunity for one to develop their own style and system of, of practicing and one of my great teachers who I've had on the show was Dr. Michael Greenwood. And, and yeah. I always remember him saying the point location, it's not really that important. It's your intention and your intuition. And so that's where I learned to, to find some freedom in my practice, to trust in my intention and my intuition. Well, and you know that, that term that we translate into English as intention, E in, in Chinese, is the, is the term that is associated with the mind and the spleen that we sometimes translate as thought. That's the same term that is translated as intuition. And I've had a lot of really, I mean, in fact, it's funny you'd bring up that very term, that very concept in the practice of acupuncture. Uh, 
I was years ago, I was talking to my colleague here in Beige, in Seattle, uh, Dan Binsky, about that very term. And I was, you know, some people say, yeah, acupuncture is all about intention, right? That's what I think you're referring to. And he's like, well, you know, intention is one way to translate E, but another way to translate that is attention. And it's like a, it's a, it's a, it, the term E that the actual character, the top part of the character is, is the Chinese binome for a sound and the bottom part is the heart. So it's like the sound the heart makes is your E. Hmm. That could be intention, yes, but it could also be the resonance that your heart receives when you when information is coming in as well. So it's this hmm. delicate, like so many things in Chinese culture, right? It's just like between, right? You're between intention and attention. It's not yeah. just that you're sending your chi like a powerful flow from your hands into the patient. It's this ability to stop and listen and pay attention as well, which is the other side of that coin. They're both, they're both parts of it. And that uh, you saying that also makes me think of intuition, kind of the sound of the heart. Yes. It, is, are there similarities is in, in the Chinese language? What is intuition putting you on the spot? Um, intuition would be, is it Hui Yi? Um, okay. So yeah, it's a, it would be at least my understanding of this particular type of E is it's an, it's, it would be almost like an educated intuition E at least this term E, which I'm translating as intention, attention. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, think about the spleen. It's associated with the spleen. So it's associated with the earth element. It's associated with something stable. It's associated with the ability to digest information a bit. So mm -hmm. it's not like the type of intuition, that, like a flash that comes from the universe at large, probably, okay. which would be something like shun, which is associated more with the heart spirit. Right. On the other hand, this type of E is one that you cultivate over time. As practitioners, we develop this. And yes, it's still intuition, but it's an intuition that is educated by working on more and more and more people, I think. And, and we all come at it different. Our E, we're all as practitioners cultivating E in different ways. Yeah. Fascinating. Tell me, how did a, a boy growing up in Kentucky get so interested in Chinese language? Well, um, I had a very good uh, teacher in high school. Um, and he uh, was an old beatnik at a public high school in Louisville, Kentucky. And I still remember, I, 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 I don't know if you've heard of the, um, the Catholic monk, Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton is a really interesting I'm character. Sure. He, uh, it, it, I, I could go in a whole different direction with Thomas Merton right now. But he, he was a, a Trappist monk uh, who ended up living in a place called Gethsemane in rural Kentucky in the 1960s. And he became very involved also in kind of 1960s uh, anti-war politics. And he met the Dalai Lama and he had all these interesting things happen to him. And he ended up passing away in a freak accident in um, Bangkok in 1969, I think. And anyway, this professor, this professor, this high school teacher had, was showing us this uh, movie. There was actually a movie uh, made of the last kind of talk Thomas Merton did. And then after I watched that movie, I was so moved by the story of his life and the fact that he passed away just like an hour later, I started looking to some of his works and he did a translation of Zhuangzi. Uh, Zhuangzi is sometimes said more often in English, uh, a Taoist kind of, an early Taoist poet. Mm -hmm. And I got so interested in that, this was my senior year in high school, that that one moment, that flashing moment of, of seeing Thomas Merton and then going to look for his book, got me interested in studying Chinese language in college. Wow. And so a few months later, I went to college and started studying Chinese. And that it just, you know, it was almost like it, like so many of these things, it was almost just a leap, right? All right, I'll study yeah. Chinese. I got to do a language anyway. And it ended up changing everything. Wow. And I love that 
that you've taken those leaps and you've had trust in that from hearing Dr. Julie speak in Santa Cruz and that basically defining the, your career up to now and, and taking from this one lecture, this one video, your desire to study Chinese language. It's, it's incredible symmetry. And those are those moments that, Todd, you know, as we get older and we have kids and life becomes more stable, so to speak, and we have more at stake, it gets harder to do those kind of things. And so, mm. you know, create keeping that type of flexibility, I think, is actually much more challenging for those of us, you know, in our entering our 50s now than it was for those of us in our 20s, of course. So yeah. it's just a, or you get a different perspective on stuff. A bit of a... a tangent you just mentioned your kids and i'm curious how they've impacted your life and in particular your professional life and practice well i'd say their number one impact is to pin me down more in one place and kind of reduce my peripatetic tendencies uh <laughs> and therefore but the, the positive effect on my on my on my um Self as a as a practitioner and a teacher in Chinese medicine has been that I, it, it's the need to see patients to make a living and by doing that I have realized that many of the things I thought I knew were not right and uh, I've refined my understanding of things I thought I understood and so I um, it is a blessing that I did not become someone who just travels around teaching without seeing lots and lots of patients because it has made me. A much better teacher, I think, and I have my, in some ways, the, the need to take care of these two kids that I have to thank for that, because I think I, knowing my personality, I could have ended up being gone all the time, traveling around teaching Dr. Wong's material as if it was mine, when it wasn't really, and it has become, in the last decade or more, it's become more and more my own, because I've done it enough where I know what I'm talking about, instead of speaking as if I was from his brain, and so that, that's been a great impact of having kids, and of course, you know, patience. You learn patience with kids, as you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I resonate with that entirely because I can think about my journey in studying, especially in studying under my mentor, Dr. Jai Surya in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And I could have easily have stayed there and and studied under him for years or decades and, and practiced and just traveled around. Uh, and it's, I'm certainly- It may with, not, it's another path, right? It's Who knows? another path, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, certainly wouldn't have led me to where I am today had I done that, but I, I fully can understand where you're going with that. What has you most excited right now? Well, I mean, what has me most excited right now, and I think like this thing you're doing here, having these kind of discussions, these podcasts, is I, I really believe this. I'm not just saying this as someone who's into, you know, practicing and teaching Chinese medicine. I think that we are in a, a new golden era in the field of Chinese medicine. There is such an interesting dialogue happening now between so many different currents of thinking in our field. You know, you know the Neijing, the Jings, the, the Jing texts, these are like rivers. And off, all throughout Chinese history, there have been these branching off of the rivers, these little rivulets and streams of currents of thinking. The, you know, the, the spleen stomach school in Chinese herbal medicine is one. Dr. Wang's approach to acupuncture being one river of, of, of thinking, a current of thinking, a xue pai. And so all these different currents of thinking in the field of Chinese herbal medicine, acupuncture, physical medicine, are all interacting with each other. And the quality and ability to look at the classical texts, people who are way better at me you know, reading classical Chinese, 
sinologists are translating information. So we're having so much more out there. And I, and I also feel we have, like I just said about myself, we have access to patient volume now in the West where, and we have decades of experience in the West. So that this is a time when this is just what Dr. Wong was saying with this field of what we call Chinese medicine, East Asian medicine, you know, that includes, of course, Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese styles of acupuncture, all of them are interacting with each other. And it is creating a, a time where there is great innovation. So it's really, I, I'm, I am changing a lot in my understanding and growing as a practitioner, my understanding of patients and the classics. And so it's really fun to be alive and practicing in our field right now. It's, it's super exciting. Yeah. Now you normally travel quite a bit throughout the year teaching around the world. Are you doing that this year or are things been put on hold? Nope, not going anywhere this year. Uh, trying some, uh, doing a little bit of, of trying to do some online education. But in contrast to a lot of the great teachers of Chinese herbal medicine, which I think translates well to online teaching, the real gist of what I love teaching is so much better conveyed in person that I feel like, again, it's like, pal it's like seeing patients without palpating. Teaching without palpating is like having a hand behind your back. I can give some theory lectures and some online education, which I'm doing. But I, I look forward to getting back to, you know, groups of 20 and 30 people like we do there at Pacific Rim, where you have a, a just the right size to really convey the information from one pair of hands to the next. And so, uh, but, you know, I spent more time with my kids. So that's been good again. Yeah. Bonus to that. Where can people learn more about you, Jason, or even connect with you? Well, um, those, uh, the, the five of us who are Dr. Wong's senior apprentices all kind of created a website called channelpalpation.org. And on that website, uh, we have, it's, uh, it's not the, you know, we don't have a, a tech guy, so the website uh, could be probably a little better. But on it, you can see links to every course we're teaching, all of us, where we'll be. And there's a nice media section there with every article that any of us have written. And that's not just me. Other students of Dr. Wong's is available for free download there. And for those of you who are Chinese readers, all of Dr. Wong's articles in Chinese are there uh, for free download. And there's, there's, so that, that's the place to look for us. Um, or email me at KentuckyGinseng at Yahoo.com. I'm still a Yahoo user. <laughs> it still exists, does it? It does, right. <laughs> so I still, I still have a Hotmail one from 96. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but you don't use it. Uh, it's like my, what I sign up for things that I, I don't want to get spam for. It's my right. default to get me in the door. <laughs> All right. Are you taking patients? Uh, yeah, I'm taking new patients. Um, okay. I mean, these days it's at probably two or three a month at the most. But yeah, we're we're you know the good thing about practicing is people get better and you need new patients. So yes. Yeah. All right, and they can find you for your practices at KentuckyGinseng.com. Dot com. All right. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I really look forward to getting you back to Victoria so we can personally reconnect and, and to get you in front of our students because, wow, you bring so much and the perspectives that you have, uh, they're, they're really mind-opening. Well, we want to thank Dr. Wong for this. That's, the, that's where they came from. And, and, and yes, thank you for having me up there. I look forward to hopefully coming up, uh, sitting up there by your house and uh, you know, looking at your goats sometime again. <laughs> they've, they've multiplied since you were here last. So yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much and we'll connect okay. soon. Okay. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Jason Robertson. If you want to learn more about Jason and his work, 
visit his personal website, KentuckyGinseng.com, and the scholarly site, ChannelPalpation.org. Jason regularly teaches workshops at Pacific Rim College and will hopefully be returning in 2021. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, Pacific Rim College's School of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine is world-renowned and offers three comprehensive diploma programs. Although our fall 2020 programs are full, we are accepting applications for 2021. If you want to begin sooner, we are offering a selection of fall semester courses online with live teaching. Visit our School of Continuing Education to learn more about these opportunities. For other online studies, most of Pacific Rim College's campus-based programs have online study options for the fall 2020 semester, including our Holistic Nutrition Certificate, which for the first time ever is entirely online and taught virtually live by our incredible faculty members. And as always, Pacific Rim College Online offers some of the finest self-paced online courses in natural medicine available anywhere. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, follow your energy and see where it leads you.